I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. The race to Alaska. Each year, a group of lost souls assembles in Port Townsend, Washington, an old frontier town filled with bears. From there, they will use what wits they have to sail their ramshackle vessels up a vile stretch of water called the Inside Passage to Ketchikan, Alaska, an old frontier town filled with bears. It's like the Iditarod with a chance of drowning. That's Jake Beatty, one of the organizers. It is an engineless, unsupported boat race along the west coast of Canada. The prize for first place is $10,000. The prize for second place is a set of steak knives. There are no other prizes. Everyone else is simply racing to feed the starving madness within them. We don't really know how many miles it is <laughs> because the course has so little structure, but it's roughly 750 miles. The race course is punishing. There are strong currents and massive vessels moving cargo and passengers up and down the coast. And then there's the weather. We wanted it to be about the riddle of how would you get to Alaska best without an engine on board. And we picked a time of year that we thought the riddle would be freshest in that the springtime along this coast is a time of storms. And the summer is a time of flat, calm doldrums. It's unpredictable. And we specifically made it open to all kinds of watercraft. So people would have to choose their vessel based on being able to navigate the full spectrum of those conditions. The race to Alaska has attracted Olympians, professional sailors, and people just looking for an adventure. They've competed on everything from expensive sailboats to contraptions they've made in their garages. Teams of nine have competed against teams of two. Anything goes. This year we had teams all over the place in terms of technical ability and boat design. So at the front of the pack, we have sort of the racy sailboats that are really designed to go fast. And in the middle, there's sort of that compromise of sail power as well as human power. So we had some pedal drive boats. We had cruising sailboats that had had some oarlocks strapped to the stern. We have a team of people in a rowboat. There's a couple kayaks. And then there was Carl Kruger. Carl registered as a solo racer, a team of one. And the vessel Carl competed on was not a sailboat or a kayak or a canoe. It was a stand-up paddleboard. Today, producer Elizabeth Nakano brings you a story about a bold idea, what it takes to pursue a seemingly impossible goal, and the unexpected places we can end up when we chase our dreams. Fitz is out this week, so I'm filling in. I'm Becca Cajal, and you're listening to The Dirtback Diaries.
You don't enter the race to Alaska expecting to take first place. At least, that's what Carl says. That's not why you do it in the first place. You know, I mean, of course everybody wants to win. It's a race. You know, I mean, of course you're going to push yourself. But to expect to win is a very different thing. In, in knowing this coast, it's like I, I knew full well that so much can happen. Carl has spent a lot of his life on big bodies of water. As a kid, he spent days canoeing on the waterways of the East Coast with his father. He taught himself to windsurf and sail at age 12 and took up surfing at 18. In 2008, at the age of 37, he and his wife Jess started their business, a charter sailing company based in the San Juan Islands of Washington, where they live. So when Carl talks about the race to Alaska, he does so with the humility and restraint of a person experienced enough to understand risk and to respect the unpredictability of the outdoors. Which isn't to say Carl doesn't believe in pushing limits. In fact, he entered the race to Alaska with the goal of pushing beyond one very personal line. My dad, he was a climber, and we didn't have a good relationship. I did a lot of hiking with him and a lot of climbing, and he always made sure that I got pushed. Carl's dad, Carl Sr., had a difficult and often unstable life. As a child, he was sent away to a school designed to stomp out any trace of his Native American heritage. Later in life, he was abused by people he trusted. And he and his wife, Carl Jr.'s mother, had a tense and unhappy relationship. By the time Carl Jr. was born, Carl Sr. was a hardened man with little patience and a quick temper. And now as an adult, I look back and I think about all the stuff that he went through and I, I get it, you know, but as a kid, he was a demon, you know, I hated him. And I think about some of the stuff that I had done. I mean, I think he, he would have got locked up. I, I mean, I had out of body experiences with him, just like so far into the world of exhaustion that I couldn't feel the ground anymore after hiking so long. But I couldn't quit because it was my dad and he totally kicked my ass for even suggesting that I quit. So Carl would dig into energy reserves he didn't know he had. He'd direct his attention outward to what was happening right in front of him and tune out the physical pain. And every time he finished one of those punishing excursions with his dad, he'd discover that the line between what he thought was possible and impossible was subject to change. That was something that my dad taught me how to do. He, he taught me how to step over that line. How do you define over the line when you're saying well, I, I guess when the, there's such huge parts of you that just want to make it stop. You know, so it's like the point of like, I can't do this and, and have to figure out how to do this. Anyway, that's the line. Carl left his hometown immediately after high school. Immediately. He didn't even wait to receive his diploma. He just told his school to mail it to him. Then he packed up his car and drove west to Washington. He worked as a mountain guide and at a wilderness therapy camp for troubled kids. He joined ski patrol and participated in search and rescue missions. He was used to pushing himself physically and mentally, and so he did. But in the back of his mind, Carl felt a nagging question. Do I love this, or am I doing it only because I'm addicted to being pushed that hard? In 1994, Carl got the chance to confront that question head-on. He was living in Bellingham, Washington, and was looking for a climbing partner. One day, he spotted an index card tacked to a corkboard in the American Alpine Institute. It just said, Rock, Ice, Alpine Touring, Steve, and with a phone number. So I plucked the number off, and I called him. 
the first few times I went out though, he scared me. Like I thought I was at a pretty high level. I'd been guiding for years and I was strong in the mountains, but I remember doing some climbs with him where he'd be leading and I'd be belaying. I'd be like, there's no way I can lead this next pitch. There's just no way, you know, I can't do it. I'm gonna get up there and I'm gonna tell him no. And I'd get up there and he would just silently hand me the rack and I'd just like take it, you know, <laughs> like, like, God damn it, you know, and I'd go and I'd get back to town and be like, never again. <laughs> like, I'm never going out with that guy again. He's crazy. Yeah. And then he'd call Thursday and be like, pick you up at 2 a.m. Saturday. Okay. I'll be all right, man. I'll be there. And then I'd get on the climb and like, oh, God, here I am again. God damn it. I swore I'd never do this again. Steve turned out to be Steve Massioli, a highly respected climber in the alpine climbing world. But Carl didn't know that for several years. All he knew was that he'd found a partner who helped him answer that nagging question. It was after some of those experiences with him where I'd get down and just like, oh my God, you know, like we just did that. That I realized just how badly I need that, that I need to step over that line, that I, I need that for myself to feel like I'm alive for a reason. He was the only climber that I ever hooked up with that wanted to go there too. They wanted to go to this place of like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Like it's just, there's always a next. You've got to keep going after that next. There's this logical progression to everything. Carl and Steve climbed together for four years. And then in June 1998, Steve went to Alaska to climb Mount Hunter. He never came back. When he went, I mean, it was just, where am I going to find that again? I just kind of left it behind. My climbing ended, you know, but I've been, I've been hungry for that. I've been hungry for that seeking, you know, that, that logical progression. Carl felt Steve's absence as he went to college, got married, and had a daughter. In 2009, he and his wife started a business running sailing tours between the Alaskan and Washington coasts. Carl threw himself into the work. And then, by chance, he had another encounter that changed his life. In 2011, Carl and a friend went to the Olympic Peninsula to surf. And he had another friend that came out, and he was on a sup. I remember seeing him out there in the surf and thinking, man, it's really cool. Right after that trip, I bought a sup. And uh, God, as soon as I got on one, it just took. It just felt really good. It's such an unfiltered way of experiencing the watery environment. It's a paddle, and it's a board, and it's you. And to feel the glide of that board underneath you and those times when you nail it and it's just perfect. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a euphoric feeling. It was Carl's wife, Jess, who came up with the idea. They were talking about the race to Alaska and Carl realized something. This isn't necessarily a sailing race. It just isn't, you know, because we've been up this coast and had to motor the whole thing because there just wasn't any air. And I put all this together. I was, I was like, man, a paddler is going to win this one day. I mean, it's going to be a light year and a paddler is going to take it. And it was Jess who said that you should paddle it. She's like, hey, dude, <laughs> like, you idiot. <laughs> Why don't you try it? I wasn't, you know, I definitely didn't put that on me. And I hadn't even thought sup yet, really. She was the one who did that. And then instantly, that was like instantly on board. 750 miles was longer than anything Carl had ever attempted. He would be challenged in exactly the ways he loved, in the ways he fought while hiking with his dad, in the ways he had been looking for since his climbing partner Steve had died. 
That conversation happened in time for Carl to register and train for the 2016 Race to Alaska. He entered under the name Heart of Gold, after the spaceship in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that could go anywhere. He was the first and only competitor to register a stand-up paddleboard as his vessel. And most people were not supportive, not even the race organizers. Here's Jake again. When we started the race, we thought, well, we know one thing's for sure, is that we will never let a stand-up paddleboard do this because it's just approaching impossible and probably pretty dangerous. Hypothermia was a big consideration for us. And just the logistics of an expedition like this on something that has very little margin of error in terms of how do people can stay safe. We actually had a, some conversation with Carl early on where he applied for the race. And usually we don't say no to people. We just ask enough hard questions that they realize they don't know the answers or that that's a bad idea. Carl convinced the race organizers, but there were still plenty of doubters. There were decidedly the three camps of people. There was Jess and Dagny, my family. They never gave it a second thought. They knew I'd make it eventually. And there was the one where people would openly say, you're out of your mind, then what a stupid idea. And then vastly more people who still thought it was crazy, and maybe I was a little out of my mind, but they thought it was rad that I was trying anyway. There are some ideas that only the person or people pursuing them needs to believe in. To Carl, this was one of those ideas. The groups of disbelievers, to him, they didn't matter because he knew what he was capable of and what he was getting into. Now, I'm just going to jump ahead and say that that first competition didn't last long for him. His board broke and he had to withdraw from the race on day three, 100 miles in. But even in his disappointment, Carl claimed two smaller victories. Even though last year was a failure in terms of getting to catch a can, it was a total success in that I proved to myself that the whole thing, it was going to work. I knew it. And it also created a buffer between the doubters and, and me because all of a sudden both camps started doubting their take on my ability to do it. A year went by. Carl continued to train and study the coastline. He contacted Joe Bark, one of the most well-known paddleboard designers in the world, and talked him into building a custom board. The pair spent hundreds of hours refining the design. The result? A board 31 inches across and 17 and a half feet long. Carl was meticulous with his planning and preparations. He didn't want reaching his breaking point to be easy. By race day, Carl had done everything from calculate how many calories his body could metabolize every hour to plotting a series of potential waypoints with multiple bailouts between each one. His goal was to complete the race in two weeks, paddling an average of 60 miles a day. So he packed light. At the start of the race, he had two bags carrying about 45 pounds of gear, clothing, and water. For food, a sports nutrition company supplied him with energy gels, tablets, and whey shakes which ended up being pretty much what he lived off of during the race. And finally, Carl made space for what he calls his four extravagances. A sleeping pad, a small stove, packets of instant coffee, and dried miso. So that at night after my shakes, I could have a miso cup, you know, and it was absolute heaven. It was so amazing. <laughs> like, I loved my miso. It was so good. The race to Alaska is broken into two stages. Stage one is a timed qualifier between Port Townsend, Washington, and Victoria, B.C. It's a pretty high bar for entry. It's got big open water. It's got shipping channels that, you know, there's freighters that go through there. 
And then Victoria's Inner Harbor is this really busy place with seaplanes that land and ferries that go in and out. And the rule is if you can get across the first stage of the race in 36 hours, it's about 40 miles, without getting rescued, then you're eligible to continue. Carl entered under the same team name as the first year, Heart of Gold. He would race to catch again against 43 other teams. And this time around, he wasn't the only sup. There were two other stand-up paddlers. Carl blazed through stage one. Of the 33 teams that finished, he was ninth. When stage two started, he was feeling pretty good. It was June 11th, 2017, 12 noon. There's the sweaty palm nervousness as you're waiting around for the horn to go off and everybody's standing there and stamping their feet. But I was confident and I shot out of there. I pulled into the lead right out of the start and I was in first for a long time. For seven hours, Carl stayed in first place, leading the pack of canoes, kayaks, and sailboats with multi-person crews. He could see he was out in front because the race organizers had given each team a satellite tracker. I actually looked at the tracker a couple times that day just to see where I was at. I was just like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right, that's stand-up paddleboard. That's what we can do. I was proud. And, and I knew the sailboats would catch me. I knew they would, you know, I knew that we were gonna get some breeze and they were gonna catch me. Carl's daily routine went something like this. He paddled for 12 to 18 hours a day, snacking on nutritional supplements. When it got dark, he'd head ashore. He'd do some stretches, eat some nutritional gel, have a little miso. If it looked like rain, he'd set up a tent. Otherwise, he slept in a bivy sack, exposed to both wind and bears. At around 3 or 4 a.m., after some instant coffee and a small nutritional tablet, It's about the size of a bottle cap, maybe twice as thick. He'd pack up and start the routine all over again. The first few days were easy. I was falling into my groove. And then on day three of stage two, Carl says he slipped someplace completely unexpected. By that time, he'd fallen out of first place like he'd predicted. He was in the middle of the pack about 70 miles northwest of Vancouver. Cape Lazo is the next point that I had to make. And I could barely see Cape Lazo out there. It was a little bit over the horizon. And that was the first day where it was like, there was very real risk. It got big, you know, I saw some fishing boats come in and it was like just big explosions of white as they were punching through the waves. And I'm just like, just do what you know, man. You know, you know this place, you know this water, do what you know, just keep putting the plate in the water and pulling. And it, it became a complete transition into just being on the water and doing what felt right. That was the jumping off place for me. That's where it all started. Carl stayed in that mental space for the rest of the day. When evening hit, he headed to land as usual. And I found this great camp spot. And I was just on my way in there when the first time it happened. And, and I know water. I know the things I expect to see there. And I never expected to see that. Just below the surface of the water, Carl says, there were shapes. I saw things moving through the water that weren't fish. <laughs> that weren't whales. They, they were shapes below the surface in the water, moving through the water. You know, not fish, not, not flesh and bone. And I, don't, I don't even want to put a name to it, and it's weird to even talk about it personally, but I would say sentient, and I would certainly say otherworldly. At first, Carl dismissed what he saw. You know, that rational part of my brain sort of took over. and was like, you're tired, man. Drink some water, get some food. You know, it'll all be fine tomorrow. Don't worry about it. 
had a wonderful night. You know, and the next day was my birthday. And I mean, I took an extra long morning that morning and drank another cup of coffee and was like, took, you know, what I thought to be pretty good care of myself, you know, even pampering myself a little bit for as much as you can on a trip like that. I get on my board and start paddling towards Campbell River and it started happening immediately. It wasn't the twilight and it wasn't my tired and it wasn't being dehydrated. It's like this point right here that you run the risk of sounding like you stepped out of the pages of a hippie prophecy novel or something. Like it, I mean, it starts sounding a little trite to say, you know, connectivity to the universe, but that's precisely what it is. I had so perfectly let go of self that I was able to exist in that state of pure connectivity to everything around me. The first two teams reached the finish line on day five. Carl wasn't even at the halfway point, but he was still in the middle of the pack, and he actually wasn't too far behind most of the racers who were ahead of him. Carl didn't see them, though. He didn't see many other people at all. The course was mostly long stretches of sparsely populated coastline packed with forest. There were rocky shorelines and steep coastal cliffs, snow-capped mountains, and islands of all sizes. Even though he was on his own, he didn't feel lonely. For one thing, there was plenty of wildlife to keep him company, whales, seals, and sea otters. But the main reason he says he didn't feel lonely is he was still in that mental space. I couldn't sleep it off. It wasn't the kind of thing where like, I achieved it one day and had to do it again the next day. It was I would go to sleep in that space and I would wake up in that space and it was just absolute comfort. I mean, that's the only word I can think of to describe it. Days six and seven of stage two passed for Carl in pretty much the same way. He kept a steady pace, nearing the halfway point just as the third team crossed the finish. He was in 16th place. Then, on day eight, he hit a snag. I had a VHF radio for listening to the weather radio and making decisions based on that, but halfway up the coast, that radio died. Dead, dead. Not, not just the battery died, but like it was dead. So Carl packed the radio away and began to make decisions by using a barometer and reading the clouds. Even that didn't shake him. I was so thoroughly in that meditative space, like just so in that flow. I mean, I was really comfortable the whole time with the risks I was taking, with the mileage I was paddling, with the, the open water. I mean, I felt perfectly comfortable. By the afternoon of day 11, 13 teams had reached Ketchikan. Carl and another race team were taking turns in 16th place. For the next three days, that team, a 25-foot sailboat, would gain a lead and then lose it, pull ahead, then fall back. Finally, on day 14, Carl pulled ahead for the final time. He was just shy of the Canada-Alaska border. And I was stoked, you know, I was like, I made it. And it was a beautiful place, you know, these big like granite blobs in the water. It looked like, like these ice cream scoop blobs of granite, just these beautiful channels, you know, these great big urchins the size of soccer balls. Carl was about 55 miles from Ketchikan. The race is pretty much in the bag, you know, I'm not gonna fail now, I could swim there from here. But it was getting dark, so he decided to head to land. I spent a couple hours just kind of thrashing around the point there and looking at things and checking out the lighthouse and thought a lot about the fact that I was done. And I was bummed, I was so bummed. 
race experience felt incomplete. I, I, I never... I never had one of those moments like I used to say with Steve or my dad where I had to just stop and think like, can I even do this? I wanted to get that mental challenge and I don't feel like that ever came. The physical piece certainly did. My body said stop constantly, you know, like there were days when you know, I was tired, Jesus Christ, you know, I paddled a long way and my body wanted to quit. You know, my averages were, you know, 50 mile averages per day for the whole thing and my longest day was 72 miles but my mind was perfectly rocking. Did the thought cross your mind, like, I could get on the board and keep going? I don't have to finish if I don't, yeah. Yeah, of course it did. What's of course it did. I mean, I knew, I knew my family was gonna be there. You know, I wanted, I wanted the closure, especially after the year before. I was like, I'm, I am going to go across that finish line. The final leg of the race was packed with spectators. There were reporters and hundreds of people who, unbeknownst to Carl, watched his progress on the satellite tracker and wanted to see his finish in person. People lining the roads and waving flags and honking horns and people on decks and yelling. And and I remember just standing there. I never expected this race to resonate for anybody else but me. I mean, I choked a couple of times. And the realization that like these people really are touched. They are stoked I made this, you know? People cried, for Christ's sake. I mean, there are people crying at the finish, you know what I mean? It's like, I think I was the only one that didn't, you know, but only through like force of will. <laughs> like I, I was like, I will not break down. I won't, not here, I'll do it later. I'm not gonna do that on my own turf. I'm not gonna ball. Of the 34 teams that started stage two, 27 finished. After 14 days of paddling, Carl placed 17th. He was the only stand-up paddler to make it. I think what Carl did is that he kind of reset the horizon of possible. In a lot of ways, I felt like, well, it's over. Like, we just witnessed the full embodiment of what we were hoping to do. What we really wanted to do was show people how accessible adventure is and how simple it can be and that it doesn't take an $80,000 sailboat to go and get remote and connect with the church of nature on this incredible coastline. And Carl did that and he did it in the spirit that we approached this whole race and adventure entirely is that you can do things that are impressive without being self-impressed that things are worth doing for the doing rather than the applause. Carl finished the race to Alaska on a Sunday evening. The following weekend, he was back at work in Washington, running sailing trips with Jess. But he wasn't the same Carl that had left just weeks before. He was withdrawn, and he hid on his boat for several weeks. It's been hard being back. You know, it's like, the more you step out and experience things like that, I mean, there's, there's a part of you that becomes less reachable to most people. And that's hard, you know, that's really hard. That's something that I've grappled with as I've gotten back. You know, it's like, I've changed. And like, walking through normal life is like, it's really hard. And Carl was, and still is, accepting what didn't happen during the race. Sure, I'm proud I pulled it off. 
and I'm still harboring that sense of disappointment that like, not disappointment, that's the wrong word. Um, it's over too soon. I feel like it's a beginning. This is just the start of something larger. I don't know what that is yet, but I know there's more. Personally, there's more there personally. And I want it, I want it really bad. in a meadow wild flowers and stooped down to take off both the shoes The Diaries is made possible by the good people of Patagonia who have joined forces with the local native tribes and skiers to oppose Jumble Glacier Resort a proposed ski resort in the heart of BC's Purcell Mountains Last week, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that it would not prohibit the development of the resort on the basis of honoring indigenous spiritual rights so that makes it even more important to continue the fight to keep Jumbo wild. Visit patagonia.com slash jumbowild to get the latest updates, watch the film, and sign the petition. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. The holiday season is coming. Need an awesome gift for a cyclist? Go to kuatracks.com and check out their lineup of good-looking, easy-to-use roof racks, hitch racks, and accessories. Thanks, Kuat. And support comes from our newest sponsor, Boston Brewing. If you're in the Richmond, Virginia area, visit their new, beautiful taproom and get a taste of the Walrus Stout series. Or visit them online at bossandbrewing.com. Support for the diaries comes from you. Have a story that would make a great diaries episode? You've still got two weeks to type it up and send it in. You can find our complete submission guidelines at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Just click on the Write For Us tab. A huge thank you to Carl for sharing a story. Carl still living on Orcas Island, running sailing charters, and dreaming up his next adventure. Preparations for next year's Race to Alaska are already underway. If you want to race, you have until April 15, 2018 to register. Go to r2ak.com. Music today from Kai Engel, Canyon Kids, the Free Harmonic Orchestra, Sergei Chermerskinov, Cloud9, Fog Lake, and Jason Tyler Burton. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. You can find links to the artists at our website. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto compose our theme song, which you can still get if you donate to the show. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Nakano, Jen Alchel, and Fitzga Hall. We're proud to have Elizabeth as the newest producer of The Dirtbag Diaries. Look for more stories from her in the coming year. I'm Becca Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. change the direction of our fate.